0: Well, this morning we'll be in Genesis chapter 30. We'll be looking at verses 25 through 43. Um, We will see Jacob's wealth increasing greatly. Um, Essentially, we'll see him becoming very prosperous. Um, And this is a pertinent topic for us because we live in the United States, which has afforded us with great prosperity. Even in the midst of seemingly astronomical inflation, we're still a very prosperous nation. Put this in perspective, some of this will sound familiar if you're here on Sunday night. Um, I don't think it was, la- or maybe a couple weeks ago or last week, can't remember which one. But let's just think about the average family in Cuba. In 2021, the average family in Cuba, they're Um, wage for the family for the home increased to 3,380 pesos per month. Doesn't sound too bad until you do the math and realize that one U.S. dollar is equivalent to roughly 24 Cuban pesos. So in 2021 the average Cuban family earned the equivalent of 148 U.S. dollars per month. Um, In a more pronounced way, they too are experiencing skyrocketing inflation to the point where they have to make great sacrifices. For instance, in Cuba, a pound of pork costs the equivalent of 19 U.S. dollars, whereas you can go to HEB, maybe you went to HEB yesterday, you can be overwhelmed by all the options for pork, you don't just have one option, and you could pay as little as $2 a pound for pork. So remember, the average family, average Cuban family, $148 a month, $19 for a pound of pork. I don't bring this to your attention to make you feel guilty for your prosperity. That's not my intent. Besides, you have no reason to feel guilty. You shouldn't feel guilty for living here in the United States of America. This is where God has placed you, in his providence. But more than anything, I bring this to your attention just to put things in perspective. First, to remind you that we have it really good here. And we should be thankful to God for all he has given us. Second, I bring this to your attention to remind you that you are prosperous, whether you think you are or not. The problem we typically have when it comes to money is we look around, we, we compare ourselves to our neighbors, and we tend to ruminate about what we don't have. And without realizing it, we subtly become pretty covetous. When we compare ourselves to others, especially those who are wealthier than we might be, we tend to forget how much we ourselves have been given. I mean, just think about the typical American family. I know some of you have probably been in some pretty dire situations, but the typical American family who has to make cutbacks. We have to forego a family vacation. We have to eat out less often. Sorry, ladies, we have to give up manicures, pedicures. Maybe even go to one of the coffee shops a few less times a week. Might not be able to go to ball games like we would like. Maybe it's the gym membership you had to cancel. All of these things you see are luxuries. Nothing's wrong with these things, but they're not necessities. In other places around the world, cutbacks involve real necessities like missing a meal or three. And not because they're doing, practicing intermittent fasting, but because they really don't have the means to be able to buy food. So to reiterate, I'm not saying that it's wrong to be prosperous or wealthy. I'm not saying you should feel guilty for being prosperous or wealthy. Having wealth can be a great blessing. But wealth will not satisfy your heart. You see, it's not wealth that's the problem. The problem is our heart's attitude towards our prosperity or towards our lack thereof. That's the problem. It's a matter of the heart. Therefore, we will do well to remember that God is sovereign over all that we have and all that we don't have. We'll do well to remember that as we read earlier, 1 Timothy 6, and as we actually, if, if we were going to Philippians 4, we would see contentment, true contentment is found in God. This is what Paul writes in Philippians 4. Well, well, Paul, well if, you, if you read Philippians 4, then you know who he talks about. I know what it's like to have much. I know what it's like to have little. But then he says, I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. He can live no matter what he has, much, little, because he's learned in whatever situation to be content. As such, in 1 Timothy 6, he warns both the rich and the poor to be free from the love of money. And he writes, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So bring this to your attention by way of introduction, because prosperity will characterize our passage this morning. We'll see that the Lord has prospered Laban through the work of Jacob. By the end of the passage, we'll see that the Lord has brought much prosperity to Jacob. And since prosperity is a prominent theme here, I thought it would be helpful for us to walk through the the passage and then step back and just think a little bit more deeply about our prosperity. So if you aren't already there, go to make sure you're in Genesis chapter 30. I'm going to read our passage, verses 25 through 43, and then I'll pray. So Genesis chapter 30, beginning in verse 25. As soon as Rachel had borne Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you, that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. Jacob said to him, you yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came and it has increased abundantly. And the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now when shall I provide for my own household also? And he said, what shall I give you? And Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, Good, let it be as you have said. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted, and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it, and every lamb that was black, and he put them in the charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks and the troughs, that is, the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred, when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks. And so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. This is God's word. Let us pray. O great God in the highest heavens, you are the heavenly father. You are the blessed son, the the eternal spirit. You are one God in three persons. And because of your work of redemption, we now come to you as our father in the name of Jesus, by the power of your spirit, who is at work in us. There's nothing too great for you, O God. Therefore, I pray. I pray this morning for hard hearts to be softened. For anxious hearts to be calmed by your grace. For discontented hearts to find contentment in you. I pray that the ignorant will see your perfect wisdom for the self-reliant to see your providence and for the downcast to know your infinite joy. Pray that you will speak to us through your word this very day. Pray that hearts would be broken and that the faith of the saints would be strengthened. Build us up Build us up as a people, O God. Grow us in grace and in gratitude. Transform us to be more and more like your son. And I pray that you might do this through the preaching of your word. So be with us this day. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to long for you. To long for your truth. To long for that day when we will be with you anew. Help us, I pray. And I pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. So as we approach this passage here... It'll be helpful for us just to consider real quickly Jacob's stay in Padan Aram. Remember, he was sent out from Canaan to go to Padan Aram, and he's been here now about 14 years. When he arrived, remember Laban, he welcomed him. Welcomed him with open arms, literally. He stayed with him for about a month, and Laban realized it's not good for you to stay with me and me pay you nothing, so he told him to name his wages. And so Jacob he offered to give Laban seven years of his life, seven years of labor for Rachel's hand in marriage. After working these seven years, you know the story. He goes to Laban and he says, give me my wife. And that night Laban tricks him, gives him Leah, Rachel's sister instead. The morning after, the morning after the wedding night, he goes and confronts Laban. And Laban told him it's not custom here to give the, younger before the older. And he said, if you will work seven more years, we'll give you Rachel's hand in marriage. So we have two seven-year periods of labor. The first seven years were marked by Jacob's, his eye is just focused on Rachel. The years went by quickly. And in the next seven years, we have sibling rivalry. And we have childbirth. We saw that last week as Jacob's family increased greatly in just a short period of time. So that's the chronology, seven years. So seven years of labor, marriage to Leah, followed by marriage to Rachel, then another seven years of labor. And now that Jacob has served Laban for 14 years, and now that he has 11 sons, one daughter, He goes to Laban, as we see in verse 25, and he's basically asking permission to go home. But before he goes home, he knows that he needs to support his family. He has a long journey ahead. He has two wives, two maidservants, and 12 children. So he makes a deal with Laban to attain wealth for himself. And that's what we'll see in our passage here. Jacob will, in a sense, negotiate. They make a deal, and then we'll see that Jacob prospers greatly In your worship guide, you'll see I've I've divided the passage into just really two sections here um, just to help us out. Um, In the first section, in verses 25 through 34, I'm calling that the negotiation. There's not really a lot of negotiating here, but there is a deal that is struck. Um, Here, what we're going to see is Jacob's desire to go home and then the agreement that he and Laban make. After this, in verses 35 through 43, um, I've labeled this the outworking of of Jacob's and Laban's agreement. Um, In verses 35 and 36, we're going to see Laban taking precautions to protect his wealth. And then in the rest of the passage, we're going to see Jacob, um, what I would say, using questionable breeding practices. And all in all, at the end of the chapter, we're going to see Jacob's wealth being greatly increased. So the plan this morning is walk through the passage, hopefully seeing the connections to the greater narrative, the greater Jacob narrative, and then step back and consider this topic of prosperity. Prosperity can be a great gift from God or it can be a devilish obstacle to the gospel. You see, the rich man leans to self-sufficiency and pride while the poor man spends all of his time longing to be rich. And both are woefully negligent to the beauty of the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The one who, although he was rich, for our sake became poor. That by his poverty, we might become rich. So now that you have an idea of where we're going, let's turn our attention to verse 25. So here, this really connects us to the previous passage. At the very end of actually 24, if you look there, we see the birth of Joseph. So we have the birth of Joseph. Rachel desired to have children. And then after many years of barrenness, we have Joseph's birth. And then now, as we see in verse 25, as soon as Rachel had born Joseph. So we have Jacob now, after Joseph's birth, he goes to Laban and he says, send me away, that I may go to my own home and country. So Joseph is born. Jacob goes to Laban. Presumably he's finished the 14 years of labor as well, but he goes now to Laban and requests permission to go home. It's time to go back home. Time to go to his home, his country. But why the connection, you might be asking, why the connection to Joseph's birth? Why does that matter? Why is this important for us to see? Is it just mere coincidence that this happened after Joseph was born? Well, according to ancient custom, a woman's status in the family was not established until she had children of her own. One commentary notes, a barren woman could be and often was discarded ostracized or given a lower status and would find protection among her relatives. So now that Rachel has a child of her own, her status among Jacob's household is secure. Hence, Jacob feels free to go to Laban and request permission here to leave. If she didn't have children, Laban might not give Jacob permission to leave or maybe he would fear that Jacob would abandon Rachel on the way to Canaan. So now that Jacob has his son with Rachel, now that he's completed the seven years of additional service, which is implied in verse 26, he now goes to Laban and asks to send him home. In the first half of verse 26, he says, give me my wives and my children. So prior to this, Jacob had a debt to pay. Remember, that's why I brought that up at the beginning. He had a debt to pay, seven years for Leah, seven years for Rachel. In a sense, it's like paying off a mortgage. You know, while you live in the house, while the house is yours, it's not really yours until you make that last payment. I'm not equating Jacob's family with personal property. Don't hear that. But there is a sense in which Jacob must satisfy this debt before he's free to leave with his family. And now that he has satisfied the debt at the end of the verse... At verse 26, he tells Laban, after saying, give me my wives, give me my children, he says, for you know the service that I've given you. Jacob's upheld his end of the bargain. Now it's time to leave. It's time to go home. And as we think about this in light of the greater Jacob narrative, his intent was not to make a home in Paddan Aram. The intent was to go there and do what? Find a wife and go back home. You see, Isaac, back in chapter 28, you can see this. He didn't send him with the intent for him to go relocate. The intent was always to come back, to come back to the promised land. And God confirmed that to Jacob whenever he appeared to Jacob in chapter 28. And he said, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. So God promised to bring Jacob back. And now as we see in chapter 30, Jacob's desire... To go home is in line with God's promises. From my viewpoint here, looks like Jacob's walking by faith. I mean, just think about it. He could remain here as a fugitive. He could refuse to return home to his father, whom he deceived. He could refuse to return home to his brother, who, remember, wants to kill him. Yet he desires to go back home. This is the right thing for Jacob to do, to walk according to God's will. He served Laban for 14 years. That's a pretty long time, pretty long time to settle in, but he realizes this is not his home. He's always been a foreigner in the land. So now it's time to go, time to pack up and go. So he makes his desire known to Laban. He requests permission to leave. And then in verse 27, we see how Laban responds to Jacob. He begins by saying, if I have found favor in your sight, Some of your translations will add something like, please stay with me. If you have the New American Standard or the Legacy Standard, you'll see these words, stay with me, in italics. Well, the italics signify that these words are not in the original text, but it's implied by it. And that's the intent here from the context. Laban is trying to keep Jacob around. He's saying, if I found favor in your sight, stay with me. Laban has greatly prospered from Jacob's service. I mean, he says in verse 27, I've learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Later on in the dialogue, Jacob will expand upon this. In verse 29, he says, you know how I've served you, how your livestock has fared with me. In verse 30, you had little before I came. It has increased abundantly and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turn. So Jacob acknowledges this. So Laban acknowledges that he's been blessed by the Lord. Jacob acknowledges that he's been blessed by the Lord. Just two brief observations. So God has increased Laban's wealth because of Jacob, first of all. Second observation, Jacob acknowledges God's hand in blessing Laban. would say this is another step in Jacob's sanctification. He's beginning to recognize God's providential hand. And here he notices that Laban has been blessed by God. Jacob recognizes God's providential hand in prospering Laban. And Laban recognizes this as well. Remember, Laban is not a God-fearing man. Laban's a pagan. He attributes his material prosperity to the Lord and he says he's learned this by way of divination. Remember, Jacob, he, he acknowledges that we don't know Jacob's probably going off of past providence. Laban is going off of pagan practice, saying he's learned this by way of divination. One commentator says divination applies to discovering what one should do in the future. And here Laban realizes that he needs to keep Jacob around, and he attributes this to some sort of pagan practice. When in all reality, all he had to do was look around and see his prosperity. But Laban's a pagan. And as we'll see in the following chapters, he's an idolatrous man. So it should not surprise us at all that he does not use God-given means to discern truth. Anyways, Laban recognizes, though, God's blessing upon him through Jacob. I would say, really, he just looked around, saw the prosperity. Jacob's been with him for 14 years. God has prospered him much. So, of course, he'd be a fool to let Jacob go in his mind. So Laban is not only a pagan, an idolatrous pagan, he's a greedy man. He wants just a little bit more. We've seen that in all of his dealings. He wants a little bit more, just a little bit more. Yeah, Jacob, I know we did this deal, but hey, how about we do this? How about you give me a little bit more service? How about now, really just stay with me? Laban's greedy. He wants more. He wants more. And so after he attributes his wealth to the Lord, he tells Jacob, name your wages. We've seen that before. Remember back in the beginning when he first met met Laban. And so he says, name your wages. But this time, Jacob will not be fooled. He will not place himself back in Laban's debt. He knows what sort of man Laban is. Let's say he's a little more wise, a little bit wiser this time around. And so this time he will earn his own wages. And so after recounting the Lord's blessing in verses 29 and 30, at the end of verse 30, Jacob asked him, but now when shall I provide for my own household also? This is an honest question. Remember earlier, I was talking about prosperity. We'll come back to this, but this is an honest question. Prosperity, wealth, not wrong. Jacob needs to provide. He has a large family. He needs to provide for his family. So he asked this question after saying, I've, I've served you, you've prospered greatly, but how will I provide for my own household? He needs to meet their needs. And then Laban says, What shall I give you? And notice, Jacob says, You shall not give me anything. Been there, done that. Not going to do that again. And then he will go on to make this deal as we'll see in a moment. He will still be reliant upon Laban, but he will not be indebted to him. And so Jacob's plan, as presented in verses 31 and 32, is to pass through Laban's flock, take the abnormally colored sheep and goats for himself. Um, It's said that these colors would typically make up about 20% of a shepherd's flock. I realize we have some farmers here who know about about sheep and goats, so Please correct me afterwards on any of this. But they, he would pass through, take the abnormally colored sheep and goats. And like I say, that would make up a small portion of the flock. So Jacob's not trying to take advantage of Laban. He's simply naming his price. He'll continue to shepherd Laban's flock until he has enough, presumably speaking, to, to support his family. And to conclude, Jacob says in verse 33. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs if found with me shall be counted stolen. And so when the arrangement draws to a close after the allotted time period, Laban will go through if he finds any flock with Jacob that doesn't belong to Jacob's flock, it would be stolen. And Laban, he likes this deal and especially a deal that seems advantageous to him. He'll get to keep Jacob a little bit longer. He will gain from this deal because Jacob's clearly a good shepherd. And so he says in verse 34, good, let it be as you have said. So that brings us to the close of the negotiation. Time's come for Jacob to go home, but before he goes home, he needs to provide for his family. So he goes to Laban and they strike a deal. And now in verses 35 through 43, we're going to see how that plays out. In verses 35 and 36, what we see is Laban, who always is looking out for number one, always looking out for himself, making sure Jacob does not get the upper hand. What he's going to do is go and actually do what Jacob was to do. Remember, Jacob was to remove the irregular colored sheep and goats from the flock. That's what we read here with Jacob's plan. But Laban is going to go do that first. And he's going to place those sheep and goats under the oversight of his sons. He's going to place them a three days journey away from Jacob. And so he's removing the irregular colored livestock, keeps them for himself. So first of all, he's greatly reducing Jacob's share on the front end and probably hoping to reduce the number of Jacob's share on the back end. I was thinking about just an illustration of this. Laban is acting like the older brother who tells his younger brother, hey, I'm gonna give you all of my duplicate baseball cards. But before he does so, he goes and removes all the duplicates, hides them, and now the younger brother goes through the cards. And what does he find? No duplicates. In this case here, we have the agreement. It's been made. But Laban will take the necessary precautions to gain the upper hand, Remember, he's a greedy man. He is not being presented to us as the champion. He is being presented to us here as the antagonist. He's a greedy man doing what he can to gain the upper hand. And so while Laban is acting underhandedly, we can't say that Jacob is necessarily taking the high road either. In verses 37 through 42, we're going to see Jacob involved in questionable breeding practices also seeking to gain an advantage for himself over and against Laban. And so as for these questionable breeding practices, what he does, he takes sticks, as we see in verse 37. He pills white streaks in them. And so he's exposing the white of the stick. He then takes the sticks, sets them in the troughs while the flocks come to drink. When they breed in front of the sticks, we read in verse 39 that they brought forth forth, striped, speckled, and spotted, which will be Jacob's wages. And then we see him engaging in a similar practice in verse 40. This time, however, instead of looking at the sticks, they're going to look at the irregular livestock from Laban's flock. So Jacob is engaged in what is called prenatal impressions. He believed that when the animals looked at certain images while mating, this would affect the characteristics of the offspring. There have been times in history that women have worn certain colors while they're pregnant to affect the the gender, the sex of the child. That's something similar here, just going back to the the breeding. I would say this is all very similar to clock turns 11-11, you make a wish. Birthday candles, you blow them out, you make a wish. There's nothing special about that. There's no guarantee that your wish will or will not come true. And here, while Jacob is using these prenatal impressions, ultimately, he should have rested upon God's promises. For it's God who prospers Jacob, not his questionable mating practices. And Jacob will come to realize this. We'll see this next week in chapter 31. He will recognize it's God who's given him everything. Richard Belcher Jr., he surmises this in his Genesis commentary. Jacob will come to realize that his own scheming will only go so far and that he needs to rely on God to bless him. Thus, there is development in the character of Jacob from a prayerless schemer to a man who depends on God. So far in the Jacob narrative, we have not seen Jacob praying to God, praying that the Lord would bless the work of his hands but we do see the Lord blessing him. We see him scheming here in some sense, but he will become a man who grows in the Lord, who will depend upon the Lord, who will wrestle with the angel of the Lord and say, do not go until you bless me. But here we see a man who is scheming for his own advantage. So at the end of 40, into verse 40. Jacob put his own droves apart, did not put them with Laban's flocks. He's trying to continue the scheming, trying to separate the flocks. As we see in verses 41 and 42, he's going to prevent inbreeding between the groups. And continuing to use this practice of prenatal impressions, he's doing what he can to ensure that his flock is stronger and that Laban's is feebler. And while Jacob's method and practice is questionable at best, deceptive at worst, we read in verse 43, thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. So as we connect this to the greater narrative, we can say that Jacob's prosperity is not the result of his questionable breeding practices, It's the result of God fulfilling the promises he made to Jacob. Through Isaac, God promised to bless Jacob with great wealth and prosperity. And we see him here doing just that. This is not to condone Jacob's practice, but to say that man will not stand in the way of God fulfilling his promises. That is another reason why we could say God is the only proper object of our faith. Everything and everyone else is unreliable. God is the only reliable being in the universe. He's the only one that we can truly trust. Now, this does not mean that we adopt a posture of skepticism toward others. Rather, this means that the only proper place for our faith is God. The same God who created all and sustains all. And as we've been reminded over and over, over time and time again throughout the book of Genesis. God will do as he says he will do. Therefore, we can trust him to do as he says he will do. We can trust his promises. We can rely upon him. So now that we've walked through this passage, we've seen God prosper Jacob. So we've seen Jacob go to Laban. I need to provide for my family. And then we see him laboring more. This would be another six years in which he's laboring. At the end of that six years, God increases him greatly. And the reason I say God does it is, well, we know that God is the one who does all things, but then we see later on in chapter 31 that he attributes all of this to God and God will come to him in a dream and show him that. But now what I wanna do In light of this, in light of seeing Jacob's wealth increase, I want to really answer this question. What are we to think about material wealth? Remember, we live in a prosperous nation. What are we to make of it all? Should we be ashamed? Should we run headstrong into it and just get as much as we can? Well, those are the two extremes that we've seen throughout church history. There have been two extremes regarding wealth. On the one hand is the belief that wealth is an evil to be avoided. Many will have taken passages like Luke 18, where Jesus tells the rich young ruler, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor. And so a great number have followed suit. For instance, there was a man named Gregorius Anicius who was born to a wealthy family around AD 540. Some of you might recognize the moniker Gregory the Great. That's his name. Anyways, in his early 20s, Gregory became a monk. Grew up in a very wealthy family, becomes a monk. And he believed in what is called extreme asceticism. I don't know if you've gotten to that yet, have you? So I'm sure you will at some point. Uh, Craig's class, Church History, will talk about this more. But the idea here extreme asceticism the idea is that you do everything you possibly can to avoid any sort of temporal pleasure. In favor, in favor of spiritual growth. So you do everything you can to enjoy anything. Oh, I'm sorry, you do everything you can to not enjoy anything. So you don't eat good food, you only eat what you need. You don't do anything that's delightful. So adopting this belief, and you actually, there's more extreme stuff, I'll let Craig talk about that. But adopting this belief, he preached against wealth. In one sermon, he referred to riches as thorns that pierce the mind and overwhelm it with anxieties and deceitful pleasures. He commended the renunciation of worldly possessions because, as he says, when we compare our earthly possessions with the happiness of heaven, they seem a burden and not a help. While preaching on the rich man and Lazarus, Gregory urged his hearers to look down upon temporal things, to share your possessions with the poor. In fact, he exemplified this. He renounced all of his inherited wealth. He built monasteries and he distributed what was left to the poor. So Gregory represents one extreme belief, that money is inherently dangerous. While a number of TV preachers in our day represent the other extreme, that God exists to make you healthy and wealthy. We typically refer to this as the prosperity gospel, which as we know is no gospel at all. But in this view, health and wealth is the goal. The prosperity gospel began to take shape after World War II. And by the 1980s, it infiltrated living rooms through televangelists like Jim Baker. In his autobiography, he writes, I got to the point where I was teaching people, instead of praying, thy will be done when you want a new car, to just claim it. Pray specifically and tell God what kind you want be sure to specify what options and color you want to. That was being preached in the name of God. I haven't watched TBN or Daystar in a while, but this sort of preaching, whenever I would, would this sort of teaching would pervade their networks. Give a little and God will bless you greatly. Be faithful and God will bless you with an abundance of material wealth. As you know, this is not the gospel. This is something else entirely. In the parable of the soils, Jesus compared the seed of the gospel that fell among the thorns to the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word. Yet prosperity gospels, encu- I'm sorry, prosperity gospel preachers encourage this longing for the deceitfulness of riches. Riches. And in so doing, they actually place an obstacle in the way of the true gospel. So those are the two extremes we've seen throughout church history. On the one hand, extreme asceticism, the godly ways to deny yourself of every pleasure to sell all that you have and give to the poor. While on the other hand is God wants you to be rich. So both of these streams are to be avoided for neither is taught in scripture. For instance, when we think about the book of Genesis, we've seen God prospering Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. After Israel leaves Egypt, God promises to prosper the people when they finally inherit the land. Yes, he warns them against falling prey to these material possessions, but it's not the material possessions that are the problem. It's the heart's desire for these possessions. So on the one hand, God does not condemn prosperity. But on the other hand, prosperity is not the chief end of man. I mean, just think about it. God promised to prosper Jacob. Back in chapter 27, it was promised to Jacob that he would enjoy the fatness of the earth. And now at the end of chapter 30, we're seeing that begin to be fulfilled. He was promised an abundance. And now we have here a man who's increased greatly, receiving in abundance. So it's safe to say that prosperity is not condemned by God. But while we see the blessing of prosperity, we see that in the life of Jacob. As mentioned earlier, we also have a picture of greed in the life of Laban. As we read through the Jacob narrative, we should not see Laban as a champion, as anyone to be emulated. Instead, we should see Laban as the antagonist here. He's a deceiver who manipulates situations to get what he wants. He deceived Jacob into seven more years of service back in chapter 29, because Jacob was bringing about, or actually the Lord was bringing prosperity to Laban through Jacob's service. Here he tries to manipulate the situation once again for his own gain. He's self-centered, he wants more and more and more because he's never satisfied. And he's willing to do what he can to get an advantage for himself, to attain greater wealth. So while wealth is not condemned, we cannot read this passage and come away thinking that we should pursue wealth no matter the cost, which is what some of the prosperity gospel preachers say. So we must not fall into either extreme. We should not fall into the extreme that says money should be avoided at all costs. And we should not fall into the extreme that says money should be attained no matter the cost. Neither extreme is taught in Scripture. In fact, the prosperity gospel of our day is explicitly condemned by Scripture. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So with that, how should we understand our prosperity? Many of you, many of us, we have much. We do, even you who think you don't. We have much. But what should we think of this? First and foremost, we must remember that all we have comes from God. Jacob eventually gets this. He eventually learns this lesson while he applies questionable practices to gain wealth in chapter 30. In chapter 31, he realizes all that he has comes from God. I've alluded to it. Let's go ahead and look at it. Go to chapter 31, verse 6. I'm going to read verses 6 through 9. So chapter 31, verse 6. He's talking to his wives, talking to Rachel and Leah, and he says, you know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages 10 times. Remember the greedy one, he keeps changing the wages to the implication here is to benefit him. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said the spotted shall be your wages, then the flock bore spotted. And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus, God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. I mean, notice Jacob's response to his wealth here. He attributes his prosperity to God. And he does so because he's about to receive direct revelation that tells him that. And we'll talk about that next week. He, receives, he, he sees that in a vision here, but he attributes his prosperity to God, not to his tactics. Yes, Jacob worked as a shepherd, but God prospered his work as a shepherd. He didn't prosper Jacob because of his use of prenatal impressions. Just as with Rachel, as we saw last week, she didn't have children because of the use of mandrakes. She had a child because God opened her womb. Now, this doesn't deny our responsibility. We don't just sit on the couch and wait for God to to bless us or do what he says. But this does remind us that God is the one who gives and God is the one who takes away. So that's the first thing. Remember, all that we have comes from God. Second, we're to receive all that we have with thankfulness. It's an easy one. Well, it should be easy, right? But it's not always easy because oftentimes we think that we actually earned it, or or we, we receive something, but we live as though we didn't receive it. But a thankful heart understands that all we have comes from God. And because it comes from God, we ought to steward it well. Remembering that our wealth comes to us from God. Our children come to us from God. Remembering that all these things exist for his glory. So we should use all that we have for God's glory, whether we have much or whether we have little. So we remember it comes from God. We are thankful for it all that it comes from God and we use it well because it comes from God. And we also need to remember that we will not find contentment in material wealth. Yes, there, might, there are things that money make easier in life, sure. But you will never find happiness or fulfillment in material wealth. As Paul teaches us in 1 Timothy 6, this craving for money has led some to wander away from the faith. By desiring to be rich in the world, some have plunged into ruin and destruction. Therefore, Scripture calls us to be content. Not because we have little or because we have much, but because we have Christ. True contentment is found in Christ alone. He's the only source of contentment. Money will never satisfy. Besides, you can be poor even if you're rich, and you can be rich even if you're poor. In Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus speaks to two different churches. One point, actually speaks to seven, but I'm referring to two here. The church in the Odyssea. He writes this. The church, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The church in Laodicea was rich, they were a very prosperous city, much like the, the, the country we live in. Yet Jesus told them, You were actually very poor, their trust was in their material wealth. And as a result, their spiritual condition was poor and pitiable. I hope you understand, money makes for a terrible taskmaster. To be enslaved to money is to be in a poor estate. But on the other hand, Jesus, speaking to the church in Smyrna, he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. How can a church that lives in poverty be rich? It's because they have Christ. They have the one who was rich, yet for our sake became poor so that by his poverty we might become rich. I mean, just think about Jesus, the eternal son of God. The earth and the fullness is his. Eternal riches, eternal glory, yet he takes on the form of a servant. He didn't take on flesh in the form of royalty. He took on a lowly form. He even said at one point, foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He was born into a lowly family. He did not have earthly accolades or wealth. And thank God that Jesus did not come in pursuit of material wealth. Just imagine if Jesus came to earth and was like Laban, manipulating, deceiving to attain worldly riches. If he did so, there would be no salvation. He would not be the promised descendant. But thank God that though he was rich, for our sake became poor, that by his poverty, we might become rich. And it's in him and in him alone that we truly become rich. Not because we gain the world, quite the contrary. It's because we gain Christ who cannot be bought with earthly wealth. So in light of this, let me ask you, how do you view your wealth? Is it your sole purpose in life to get it? From what we get from Laban, that's what he, that's his life. Is your sole purpose in life to attain wealth? Do you spend all your time laboring for just a little bit more? And you might even find yourself saying, you know what, if I had just a little more time in the week, how useful I could be to the kingdom of God. And you say this while you're laboring to maintain a life of luxury. But maybe your problem isn't spending all of your time laboring for money. Maybe your problem is that you would be devastated if you lost it all. We'll see with Laban's sons next week it looks like they are devastated because their father's wealth has decreased. So how would you react if all your wealth was gone tomorrow? Would you be devastated or would you be content? We live in a day where we're much less aware of the dangers of greed and covetousness. I would say in some ways, greed and covetousness are so common in our day that it's hard to even recognize it in ourselves. If you go back and you read the Puritans, you'll find men who recognize the danger that accompanied the love of money. Thomas Boston, he said, Prosperity puffs up sinners with pride, for it is very hard to keep a low spirit with a high and prosperous lot. William Bates, he said, Prosperity is the strongest obstacle against the conversion and reformation of sinners. Thomas Watson said prosperity often deafens the ear against God. Matthew Henry he said there is a burden of care in getting riches, fear in keeping them, temptation in using them, guilt in abusing them, sorrow in losing them, and a burden of account at last to be given up concerning them. You see the Puritans they understood the danger that riches compose. Do you? It's not that riches or wealth are inherently evil. It's your wicked heart that lusts after riches and after wealth. That's the problem with earthly riches. It's the heart's allurement for the material world when your heart was made for the immaterial, for that which is spiritual. So I ask you again how do you view your wealth? Are you like Laban? Is your sole purpose in life to get it? Would you be devastated if you lost it all? Or do you hold your wealth loosely, realizing that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away? Jacob's question when he asked Laban, how will I provide for my family is an honest question. Something that we would do well to to understand just the, the, the need there to provide, to support. But so often we take it and run to the other extreme. We hold on to our wealth so tightly that we can't let it go. And we find, well, we will find one day that if we gain the world and we don't have Christ, we will be very poor indeed. But if you lose everything you have, and you still have Christ, then you have everything. You might be poor in this life, but with Christ, you are very rich. And if you're rich in Christ, then you'll be thankful for all that you have. John Flavel, another Puritan, he writes this, prosperity excites the love and gratitude of the saints to God. Did you hear that? That's not the way the other guys were speaking. They were warning against the dangers of the love of money. But here he says prosperity excites the love and gratitude of the saints to God, the author of their mercies. But notice, while it inflames the sinner's lusts, it fills the good man's heart with benevolent and grateful affections. Not that these outward things are the primary reasons or motives of his love to God, far from it. He loves him when he takes away as well as when he bestows them. But God sanctifies prosperity to his people, makes it conducive to their spiritual warfare or welfare and subservient to their usefulness in this world. So how do you view your wealth? Do you see it as a gift from God to be used in service to his kingdom? Or is it a stumbling block in your way? Does your wealth give you a false sense of security and self-sufficiency? Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. He says that because your wealth will not save you on that great and awesome day when you stand before the Lord. Your wealth isn't yours to begin with. It's all a gift from God. Yet so many of us, as I noted earlier, we receive it as though we didn't receive it. We boast in ourselves. We boast in our own might when the only proper place for our boast is in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is truly rich, who became poor, that by his poverty we might become rich. And while it's impossible for the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven based on his riches, it's not impossible for God to save the rich man or the rich woman. For what is impossible with man is possible with God. So if you're trusting in your riches this day, let go of what you have and trust in Christ. And I don't mean sell it all, give it away. I mean, figuratively, let go of the grip that you have on it. Hold it loosely as a gift, but as that which one day will fade away. We often seek to build treasures in this world, but the treasures in this world will decay but God is forever. Look to him in whom there is true contentment. Buy from him without money and without price for he alone can satisfy the longings of your heart and use all that you've been given to bring glory to him. Look to Christ. In him alone is hope, joy, and contentment. Nothing you have, nothing you labor for in this world will bring it. Don't be like Laban who needed just a little bit more. Know that God is the one in whom we will be rich. Look to Christ, stand in him and keep looking to him. Don't be distracted by shiny things in this world. That's what happens to Israel later on as they go into the promised land. They become distracted by the things of this world. Use the things of this world to honor and serve God don't be served by the things of this world. Don't serve the things of this world. Serve him alone. Look to him who became poor that you might become rich. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we hear about these warnings in scripture. We see passages like the one we have today and we see prosperity and so easy for us to think about him or her and not me. When many of us, we fall prey in some way to the deceitfulness of riches. We live in a land where we are very prosperous. I pray that we would use that prosperity for good. Receive it with thankfulness not taking these things for granted and also not being deceived by the idols of the heart that convince us that we just need a little more. We become anxious because we need more, we need more, we need more instead of trusting in you who has given us more. Help us to look to you, to continue trusting in you. Help us to be wise. Give us wisdom as to how to steward that which you've been given us. Help us, we pray. In Christ's name.